So here we are, and we are in this new series, and let me just remind you that in our previous study, I pointed out in those first nine verses that we just read again together today, uh, how Paul referred to Jesus Christ no less than nine times in those first nine verses. As we are looking at this letter, let's remember this, and we will, we will bring this up as a reminder frequently, that we are looking at this through the lens of everyday discipleship. So that, that's the, the way we're approaching this letter to the Corinthians. We want, we want to grow as disciples of Jesus uh, as we make our way through this book. And the thing that's the most important to remember in all of this is that our faith is in a living person. See, our faith is in a person who is alive. And of course, that person happens to be the son of God. And our goal is to get to know and to love and to be like and to serve him more and more. You know, other religions are not really connected so much to a person, at least a living person that you have a a living relationship with. But that is the essence of the Christian faith. We, this is not about just uh, some ethical principles or some moral principles. Uh, This is not about some rituals and some rites that we go through or some sort of a creed that we memorize. This is about a person. And so we're, we're growing in our relationship with this person. So that's our, that's our goal. That's our objective as we take our journey through this letter to the Corinthians. Now, I want to go ahead and jump right into the contents of the letter. And our focus today is going to be on the question that Paul asked, is Christ divided? But first, I want to look quickly at a few things that are there in the first nine verses. I don't, I don't want to overlook them. Um, last week, as we looked at the first nine verses, we really just focused on the fact that Paul mentioned, as I've already said, uh, Jesus Christ nine times in nine verses. So that, again, reminds us that Paul was all about Jesus, And this letter's all about Jesus. But there are a number of other things that we read over, but we didn't really um, comment on them. So so I want to go back as sort of an introductory uh, thing, and I want to just make a few comments. So there are seven things that I want to mention to us from these first nine verses, and I am going to cover those seven things in seven minutes So we're going to go really quickly through these things because, again, uh, it's not the really the the gist of where I feel like the Lord wants us to go today. But I think it's important to have these things there um, in in the in the background and our understanding as we enter in. So 
seven things in seven minutes. I think I did it in about nine minutes last time. So I'm gonna try to, I'm gonna try to hit the seven minute here. So first thing I want you to notice in the very first verse, verse Paul introduces uh, himself as an apostle, but then he also mentions this, this person. He says, our brother Sosthenes. And the reason that this is so interesting is because in the 18th chapter of the book of Acts, which is where we have the uh, historical background for the establishing of this church, we have also there a reference to Sosthenes. But in Acts, we find him not as a a partner in the gospel with Paul, but we find him as uh, someone who's opposing Paul and the gospel. And so there in the 18th chapter, uh, Sosthenes was the one who uh, inspired a kind of a revolt against the message of Paul. They took him, they brought him before the magistrates, and they tried to get the magistrates to condemn him. And the proconsul at that time, or the, you know, the civic leader there in the community, was a man named Gallio. And Gallio, when they bring Paul and they, they come with these charges against him, he says, oh, look, I, you know, these are religious issues. These are, um, these are things I, I don't want to be involved in. He said, if it was a matter of crimes or wrongdoing, O oh Jews, then I would listen to you. But since this has to do with your religion and your laws, I don't want to have any part of it. So he refused to try Paul. Now, this man, Sosthenes, who kind of led this whole thing against the apostle, it says that after that, the crowd took him, and right there before Gallio, they beat him. And it says that Gallio didn't do anything about it. He didn't care about it. But here's the fascinating thing. Now, let me say this before I say how fascinating it is. I mean, it is possible that these are two different people with just the same name, but I don't think it's really likely because this man is a leader of the Jewish synagogue. That's, that's where he is originally. Um, so I think what Paul's doing in introducing himself along with Sosthenes, he's reminding the Corinthians of the power of the gospel that the gospel is, to, is able to take even those who are opposed to it initially and bring them around by God's grace and bring them into the family. So Paul introduces himself along with this man, Sosthenes. Now, in verse 2, Here's another thing I want us to see. To the church of God in Corinth, to those sanctified in Christ Jesus and called to be his holy people. Now, the New International Version does not use the word saint. Instead, it just sort of communicates the essence of what the word saint means. The word saint means holy people, people who are set apart. I think there's some wisdom in this because even still today in the church uh, and and even in the world to some degree, people who are familiar with the church, uh, there's confusion about what a saint is. And there are still a bunch of people that think of saints as a special category of Christian, a unique group of Christians who excelled far beyond other Christians and therefore they 
were canonized as saints. But that's never the way the New Testament used the term. The New Testament always uses the term to speak of all of those who believe in Jesus as those who have been set apart as the people of God. And so the NIV correctly uh, changes it and, and really you know, sort of modernizes and updates it, but it gives us the actual meaning. To, the, to those who are God's holy people, every person who is a Christian is in that category of God's holy people. Holy means set apart. We've been set apart by the Lord for his glory and for his purposes. Now, Paul goes on and he says this concerning them. Uh, Two things, I'll tie these together. He says, um, for in him, or he says, I I thank God uh, for you because his grace given to you in Christ Jesus, for in him you have been enriched in every way with all kinds of speech and with all knowledge God thus confirming our testimony about Christ among you, therefore you do not lack any spiritual gift. So he says they're enriched with speech and knowledge and they're not lacking any spiritual gift. So this is, this is a, a church where these people have really been gifted by God. God has seen fit to supernaturally equip them so that they understand the truth and they are able to communicate the truth and they have these gifts, these spiritual gifts that are working in their midst and through them. As a matter of fact, this letter to the Corinthians has the most extensive teaching on the gifts of the Holy Spirit uh, out of all of the writings of the New Testament. So when we get to chapters 12 through 14, we are going to have, in a sense, kind of a mini-series on the gifts of the Spirit because that's what those chapters are taken up with. But here's the thing that I want us to see. Here they are. They've been enriched by God. They've been gifted by God. That's one side of it. But you know what the other side is? The church is kind of a mess as well. And we're going to see that. And, And it kind of is just, it's just a reminder that God is good, and sometimes despite ourselves, he is still blessing, and he's working, and he's doing things uh, with us and among us, even though we might be messing things up at the time. But, but of course, he doesn't, he doesn't plan for us to stay messed up, and that's what this whole letter is about. This letter is what you might call uh, a very uh, a corrective letter. So, you know, some of Paul's letters are very, uh, we well, might say, doctrinal. And in other words, they communicate deep theological truths to us. Corinthians does that a little bit, but not so much. It's more corrective. They just had all kinds of problems. And Paul's going to go from one to the next to the next, all the way through to correct their misunderstanding and, and misbehavior. So we see there again God's grace at work. They're enriched. They're not lacking any spiritual gift despite the fact that they're kind of screwed up. Now, uh, fifthly, look at what it says. He says concerning them, he says, as you eagerly wait 
for our Lord Jesus Christ to be revealed. So he says that they are eagerly waiting for the revelation of Jesus Christ. What this means is they're waiting for the return of the Lord. And every generation of Christians, you know, God built it into his word that every generation of Christians could anticipate the coming of the Lord. You know, the scripture never tells us, uh, never gives us a date, never tells us the, the exact time the Lord is going to come. It, it always leaves that ambiguous so that every generation could live with that hope. And so here we are in the very first century, these Gentile believers who have come to faith, they are living with this, uh, this uh, hope of Christ being revealed or the revelation of Christ. This is the same word that the, um, you know, some Bibles, uh, mostly Catholic Bibles, will translate the, the Greek word apocalypsis into apocalypse. And so if you have a Catholic Bible and you go to the last book of the Bible, you go to the apocalypse. That's just taking the, uh, the Greek word and um, anglicizing it. Um, most translations, apart from the Catholic version, translate revelation because that's what the word apocalypse means. It means revelation. It means to be revealed. So they're waiting for the revelation of Jesus Christ. And then Paul assures them in verse 8, he, speaking of Christ, will also keep you firm to the end. So the promise, he will keep you firm, he will keep you strong all the way to the end. It's kind of like Paul said in other places, he that began a good work in you will complete it. He's reminding the Corinthians of the same thing. The Lord's going to complete what he started in you. And then the final thing that he says in uh, the final verse here, verse 9, he says, God is faithful who called you into fellowship with his son, Jesus Christ. So God's going to, he's going to keep you firm. He's going to keep you strong. He's going to complete the word he started and you can bank on it. He's faithful. So those are the things that I think we needed to just really quickly look at. Now let's move on and let's focus now on what our primary point is today. And again, it goes back to that, uh, that question, that rhetorical question that Paul asked, is Christ divided? Now you know what a rhetorical question is, right? A rhetorical question is a question that there's an obvious answer for. And so we're going to see, Paul asked the question, is Christ divided? We're going to see what the answer is in a moment. But in verse 10, Paul says this. He says, I appeal to you, brothers and sisters, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree with one another in what you say, and that there be no divisions among you, but that you be perfectly united in mind, thought, and purpose. I'm adding purpose because the, the word uh, lends itself to it there. So what we have in verse 10, uh, Paul is, now remember, so Paul's the founder of this church. He spent uh, a year and a half there getting the church established. He's now moved on to other things, but he's now writing back to them to try to help them through 
some of the problems that have developed. And one of the problems that has developed is a division. There's a division in the church. The word translated uh, division is schismata. And we get the word uh, schism from that. But it's a word that means uh, a tear or a split. And so what Paul is saying is, he's saying that the the body of Christ, uh, through your behavior, the body of Christ is being torn up. And this is not a good thing. Now, here's something that we really all need to understand. The context here, so these splits and these tears and these things that are happening, the context is not about doctrine. It's not about doctrine. Now, sometimes... That is what's happening. It's, it's doctrinal issues. And some of the other epistles address um, similar kinds of things that were happening, but they were happening over doctrine. But the context here is not about doctrine. And here's the point that we all need to understand. You do not have to be perfectly agreed doctrinally to be one with other Christians. Now, we need to know that because a lot of times we tend to think that unless somebody sees things exactly the way we do regarding aspects of our faith that we need to uh, disassociate from them. We need to separate from them and we need to let other people know too that, hey, you should stay away from those people because they hold different views than we do. Well, we have to understand that there are levels of doctrine. There are what you might call primary doctrines and secondary doctrines. Now, when it comes to primary doctrines, primary doctrines are those those teachings that all Christians must adhere to in order to be Christians. So nobody who is genuinely a Christian is going to be saying something else or rejecting uh, primary doctrine. Primary doctrine refers to things like who God is, the person of God. Well, the, the Bible reveals to us that there's one God, but there's one God in three persons, right? The Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Uh, The Bible tells us that uh, Jesus was born of a virgin, Jesus lived a sinless life. Jesus died an atoning death. Jesus bodily rose from the dead. These are primary doctrines. If you don't believe those things, you're actually outside of the Christian faith. But then there are secondary doctrines that we might disagree about but we are not to break fellowship over. But this is inevitably what happens all the time. Christians divide over secondary doctrines. They take secondary doctrines and they kind of elevate them to more of a primary place. And then they say, uh, we can't associate with you. And you know, sometimes they get nasty and they call people things like heretics, because they don't hold to our view on these things. And that is wrong. And it's tragic. 
and it's pervasive and it should not be. So really quickly, what are we talking about with secondary doctrines? I'll just mention three, just so you you get what we're talking about. Uh, Creation. Creation. Now, all Christians, all Christians believe that God created the universe. No Christian doesn't believe that. But what Christians differ over is just exactly how God created the universe. That's where the debate comes. Now, some people believe that God uh, in spoke the universe into existence and then assembled everything together in six literal days and on the seventh day rested and that's how it happened. I'm one of those Christians. I believe that. Other Christians say, well, you know, it doesn't seem like it happened like that. You know, I think with science and stuff, maybe, maybe it happened like um, God created everything, but he, he put in an evolutionary process and so he uses evolution So that's a different view, right? They're not saying God didn't do it. They're just saying, I'm not sure how God did it. I I don't think that he did it this way. I think he did it that way. Now, some Christians have become mortal enemies over a difference of opinion about creation. Somebody was asking me the other day, about the age of the earth kind of a thing and you know all of that. And I said, well, you know, I happen to be a six-day uh, creationist, but I really don't care if you're a six-day creationist. If you are, great. If you're not, I-, I would talk to you about it if you want me to. I'll tell you why I believe that if you want me to, but I'm not gonna beat you over the head and spend all of my time trying to convince you that you need to understand this the way I do because I'm satisfied with the fact that you know in the end that God created everything. That's what it goes back to. So creation is one. Baptism is another. You know there have actually been wars in church history over how to baptize people? Literal wars, like not just verbal uh, jousting, but like battles that have taken place because one group believed that baptism should be done one way and another group believed that it should be done another way. The word baptize does mean to immerse. So some people say baptism is by immersion. And if you were not immersed, then you're not baptized. And other people say, well, I don't know. You know, I think maybe sprinkling is sufficient. It's just the idea, the symbolism of it all. And um, you know what? Who cares? You know, Paul even says, as, as, as we read, Christ didn't send me to baptize. I don't want to argue about baptism. Christ sent me to preach the gospel. If baptism was this thing that you had to have everything exactly precise on it, I don't think Paul could have said what he said here. So baptism is one. And then finally, just quickly, um, eschatology. Eschatology means the, the study of last things. So this is last day stuff. It's prophecy stuff. Um, Again, all Christians believe that Jesus is going to come back. All Christians believe that. Jesus is going to come back and set up the kingdom of God. Again, it's just a matter of what it's going to look like. Uh, How is it going to happen? What is the time frame for it? What are the different aspects to it? And so uh, it's, it's over the details of how it might happen that a lot of times divisions take place but they shouldn't. You see, that's the point. Hey, you believe that Jesus is going to come back and set up God's kingdom. I believe it. I believe it's going to happen like this. You think it's going to happen like that. 
Neither one of us really know exactly how it's going to happen. So let's just love each other, like the Bible says, and let's carry on in the business of serving Jesus. So that's what we should do. So my whole point here is to say that Paul is dealing with something different than that here. He's not even talking about that stuff. And again, I want us to understand that the problem here is a power struggle, not a theological controversy. And like I said, we need to understand that we do not all have to think the same way about secondary issues. We can still love one another and serve the Lord side by side, even if we don't see eye to eye on secondary issues. So here Paul, he's dealing with personality personality politics and power plays within the church. So one writer summed it up like this. He said, Paul does not require uniformity or replication in every detail of doctrine, but a non-competitive attitude that sets aside all hint of power play. He wants them, the Corinthians, and all of us, to all take the same side and to be free from factions. Paul wants us to all, hey, we're all on the same team. That's what he wants us to understand. Christians are on the same team. But if we break ourselves all up into a bunch of different teams, then this is going to be problematic. So what was the specific problem that Paul is writing about? Well, he goes on and he tells us about it in verses 11 and 12. He says, my brothers and sisters, some from Chloe's household have informed me that there are quarrels among you. What I mean is this. One of you says, I follow Paul. Another, I follow Apollos. Another, I follow Cephas, which is the Aramaic name for Peter. And still another, I follow Christ. So this is what's happening in the Corinthian church. Paul, as I said, he's gone on to other things. He's carried on his ministry. And he hears that now the church is being divided up. And of course, none of the names that he mentions here, his own name for one, none of them are involved in any of these uh, politics that are going on in the church. They're not involved in these power plays, but people in the church are latching onto these names and then creating factions throughout the church saying, hey, hey, no, I'm, I'm, I'm for Paul. Oh, well, you know, Paul's fine, but, but I think Apollos He's really our man. And others are like, well, forget Paul and Apollos. Who are they? Man, Peter is the guy. He was with Jesus. And somebody finally says, forget all of them. I'm I'm just for Jesus. You guys are all whatever. (laughs) But you can see how counterproductive this is, right? 
Now, so Paul would be the founder of the church. So naturally, there would be many people there that would say, I'm for Paul when it comes down to it. Apollos came to the church and Apollos was, the scripture uh, describes Apollos as he's eloquent and he's mighty in the scriptures. He's an Alexandrian Jew. Alexandria uh, was one of the intellectual centers of the ancient world. So Apollos, uh, he comes from that background and he's got this amazing gift. He's eloquent. He can speak so well. And he's mighty in scripture. And then Peter, of course, Peter is, he was right there with Jesus. Peter's the one who Jesus gave the keys of the kingdom to. So you could see how these kinds of things started to develop. But if we just stop and think about it for a moment, of course you can see how how destructive this could be to a congregation as well. You know, let's just say, what if we... What if here in, in our fellowship, what if we had, um, you know, four different people who taught the word and, and then we had groups that divided up, different sections, and they had their favorite preacher. And so you show up on Sunday and your guy isn't up there. You're like, oh, why is this guy speaking today? I don't even like this guy. You know, gosh. Turn to the person next to you. Do you even like this guy? Are you kidding? I love this guy. This, this, God ministers to me so much through this person. Oh, gosh. What's your problem? I can't even speak, you know? No, I, I like so-and-so. Somebody else hears you and they go, hey, neither one of those guys are very good. I, you know who I like, don't you? Now, what if we, what do you think that would do to our church if that's the kind of mentality we had? It will break everything up. It'll tear everything up. And and this is what was happening in Corinth. And quite frankly, this is what's happened in the body of Christ. And this is actually what's happened in, in other churches beside the Corinthian church as well. But... The beautiful thing is how Paul handles this. Now, let me just say this. The Corinthians, as we already pointed out, they were a mess in many areas. They still had so many things wrong. They saw the church as a competitive environment where the goal was to be in the in group. And so they created these cliques around the names of the apostles and Jesus. But, but what does Paul do? He does, he does the absolute right thing. And he does the, the thing that's necessary to nip it in the bud. He asks this question in verse 13. Is Christ divided? Was Paul crucified for you? You see, Paul is not going to give one minute to any of this stuff. Now, unfortunately, sometimes these kinds of divisions are able to really develop because there are personalities that promote that sort of thing. There are people that they like to be considered as the most important or the best or whatever the case might be. But the the Apostle Paul was 
completely free from that. He had no personal ambition. He had no desire to have his name elevated above that of anybody else's. And so he just comes very, very candidly straight at them with, is Christ divided? Was was Paul, was I crucified for you? So he's just showing them that he's not buying into this in any way, shape, or form. And then he goes on and he says, I thank God that I did not baptize any of you except Crispus and Gaius so that no one can say that you were baptized in my name. Yes, I also baptized the house of Stephanus. Beyond that, I don't remember if I baptized anyone else. For Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel not with wisdom and eloquence, lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. So you see, they were making a comparison. Oh, Apollos is way more eloquent than Paul. And oh, but Peter is this. And and, oh, but the wisdom, all of this stuff. Paul says, you know, none of those things are the point. It's not about wisdom or eloquence. It's about the power of the gospel. And, of course, it's about Christ. And so, Paul, he just tackles it straight on in these verses. And now, this is the beginning of of an argument, really, that's going to carry us all the way through the fourth chapter. So right here, beginning at verse 10, all the way to the end of the fourth chapter, in a sense, Paul is dealing with the same kinds of issues. And we'll get more into the details next time of how the Corinthians thought so highly of of wisdom. Uh, As a matter of fact, Corinth was a center of philosophy. And so they put a high priority on Intellect, And it was, uh, uh, you know, in those days, philosophers were not just people who sat around and thought about stuff. They were people who articulated it very precisely. They were rhetoricians and they were uh, eloquent and they spoke in such uh, powerful ways. They could just keep a person spellbound by their, their ability to string words together. And so the Corinthians were all about all of this stuff. And they didn't remember that none of those things are the main thing. The gospel itself and Christ crucified, that's where the power is. So Paul's going to go on to uh, elaborate on that in detail. But a little bit further, just to give you a little taste of where it's headed. At a certain point, Paul will use himself and Apollos to illustrate the point that we're on the same team. So remember here, they're juxtaposing Paul uh, and Apollos. And so we already said Paul was eloquent, or excuse me, um, Apollos was eloquent. He He was this man who was mighty in the scriptures. You know, Paul was brilliant, but in many things that he says in his in his letters, it seems that people they didn't think he was that good of a speaker, though. So anyway, Paul's going to go on later in the third chapter. 
he's going to go on and he's going to address this situation. And these are the words that he uses. He says, what after all is Apollos? And what is Paul? Only servants through whom you came to believe as the Lord assigned to each his task. And then he says this, I planted the seed, Apollos watered it, but God makes it grow. The one who plants and the one who waters are one. See, Paul's saying, look, don't try to divide us. Don't try to pit us against one another. This isn't about a competition. We are together in this. We need Apollos. We need Peter's voice. Some people need to hear my voice, Paul would say. But we're not competing with each other like these these philosophers that you are so enamored with. No, we're, we're on the mission together. We're on one mission. And that is to exalt Christ and to proclaim his word. So that is the, that's the historical situation that Paul is addressing here. But I want to take this, um, this question of Paul, is Christ divided? And I want to bring it into the 21st century. I want to bring it into 2021. I want to bring it into the moment that we're living in because it is certainly relevant at this moment, isn't it? It is so incredibly relevant because Christians are divided today over so many things. Now, I don't know, I was thinking about this last night. Um, I don't know if this is the most division I've ever seen in the church in my years in pastoral ministry, but if it's not, it's pretty darn close. I'm, I'm, you know, I was trying to think about it. I was thinking, okay, well, you know, what have I seen over 40 years? And, you know, uh, what have I seen here in the church in America? Uh, what did I see in the church in Britain when I lived there? And, uh, you know, trying to just think is, I, I don't want to overstate the case. Like, this is the worst moment in the history of the world for the church. But I think at the same time, we have to recognize that we have some serious issues around uh, division in the church today. And specifically in the American church. I mean, I, you know, it's probably other places as well, but, but we see it really. And maybe it's because of social media and, you know, everybody has voice, everybody has an opinion now. Maybe, maybe that's why it just seems like it's so much more, um, radical than it's been in the past. And maybe that is the the case. Maybe it is more because now we've got everybody throwing their view out there. So there are many, many things. Politics. I, I can definitely say in my time as a Christian, 40 plus years, I've never seen a divide in the church over politics like today. I think a lot of people would say, you know, probably since the Civil War, there hasn't been a, a divide politically in the nation like there is today. 
and maybe there was in uh, the early 20th century as well. But uh, so I can say that regarding the church for sure. Uh, divisions over politics, di divisions over race. Well, this is, again, something that I have not really seen, this kind of division over race. Uh, pandemic protocols. <laughs> pandemic protocols. I mean, who would have ever dreamed back a year ago, because it was just about a year ago, it's probably a year ago, almost to the day that I first mentioned the coronavirus. And at the time, maybe you remember, I said, oh, this is, this will blow over in, you know, a few weeks. We, we won't even hear about it anymore. Well, I was a little bit wrong on that, apparently. <laughs> but, but I, you know, I came back a few weeks later. It was March 15th, so a month from now. And it was like, okay, here's what's happening, and, and here's what we're going with. But, but, you know, these protocols have been rolled out, and man, the crazy division you know, mask, no mask has become like mask wars. <laughs> and listen, I, I say this a lot, but I, I can understand that the world, people outside of Jesus are going to behave in certain ways. And in a sense, it's ex excusable because you're like, okay, yeah, they don't know what we know. They don't have the Lord, the Holy Spirit. And so, yes, they're going to behave this way. But what, what do we say when Christians are acting just like everybody else? What do we say when in the church there are the same kinds of uh, conflicts going on? There's the mask, the no mask. You know, for some Christians, it's like, you know, if you put on a mask, you're such a, you know, you don't even have any faith. You're not trusting God. You're brainwashed. You're, you're giving yourself over to the government. These things don't even work. You know, this is a joke. And then other Christians are like, you're a, you're, you want to kill people. You don't love anyone. You're, you're not wearing a mask because you don't care about anybody but yourself and your rights. And, and you know, Christians are fighting. This, these are things Christians are saying back and forth to each other. And so it's the mask or it's the social distancing or it's the in-person meeting versus the no in-person meeting. So some are like, hey, we've been meeting the whole time. We never closed our church for one second. We don't social distance. We don't wear masks. We worship God. We trust God. We have our rights. You people are weak and you're brainwashed. Then the other side's like, man, look at these Christians. They get a meeting, super spreader events every weekend. They're going to kill everybody. And Christians are fighting about it. And sometimes pastors are the ones leading, you know, they're right in the front, sword drawn. It's going to battle over the mask or the in-person meeting or the vaccine. You know, war, vaccine wars. Don't take the vaccine, man. It's the mark of the beast, I know. <laughs> but people say that, and they're not kidding. It's a chip. There's a chip in there. Bill Gates put it in there. They're going to use this to track you and all of that. And then, of course, there's the other side. Everybody needs to get vaccinated. The government needs to force you to get vaccinated. You better get vaccinated. I'm never going to see you again. I don't care if I'm your child <laughs> or your spouse. So listen, 
This is the world we live in, isn't it? Christians canceling other Christians, thinking about the political thing, Christians canceling other Christians because uh, they assume that a Christian voted the wrong way. Oh, you voted for that person? I don't ever want to see you again. I don't ever want to talk to you again. I will not go to your church because I don't want to be in the same room with somebody who voted for that person. This is the kind of stuff that we are in the midst of. You've got the social justice warriors in one church on one side of the street. You've got the Christian nationalists on the other side of the street in another church, and they're all hurling verbal stones back and forth at one another. Christians are divided. The very thing that Paul is saying, that there be no divisions among you. And that's exactly where we find ourselves today. But let me just say this. Not all Christians are divided, thank God. So like I said, I don't want to overstate the case, but I think everything I just said is true. But you know what? There are Christians that are navigating this time well. And not everybody's divided. And thank God for that. This past week on Wednesday, I uh, was invited to a gathering. It's called One Table. It's a, it's a group of Orange County pastors from all different kinds of backgrounds. And we get together occasionally a couple times throughout the year. And, and we just hang out and we pray for each other and encourage each other and you know, try to bear one another's burdens. We have a meal together. And you know, this past week, we sat in this room and some people had a mask and some people didn't have a mask. And we had all kinds of diversity in the room. And we just had such a wonderful time. It was so good. It was so encouraging. And I walked away just saying, thank you, Lord, that here are, are pastors from different denominations, different backgrounds, and different opinions about a lot of things, but we could sit around a couple of tables and we could just really have a rich time of fellowship with each other. I mentioned to you before that I am in a, a cohort, a study cohort with about 15 men from all across the country. Here's what we have in common. We have this in common. We believe that Jesus is Lord and we believe the Bible is God's word. But you know what? We disagree over tons of other things. But you know what? We don't really care. We don't, we don't go there to disagree. We go there to focus on what we believe in. The main thing, the primary thing, Jesus is Lord. The Bible is God's word. And let's encourage one another. So, lest we lose heart, let's remember that it's not all as crazy as it seems. And there are plenty of people who are doing a good job, walking in the spirit, and, and trying to be a good witness. So the, the, the main point is this. Christ is not divided. Christians are divided, but Christ is not divided. He is one. And if we are divided, it's because we've taken our eyes off of Christ. That's what's happened. 
That's why all this division exists, because we've taken our eyes off Christ. And we must fix our eyes again on Jesus. And as we do that, he will bring us back together. Listen, you can't be right with Jesus and hate your brother or sister. You can't. If you hate your brother or sister, you're not right with Jesus. It's that simple. It's not at all complicated. So if you find that you've got this animosity, if you've got this just anger in you toward other believers in Jesus because you think they did this or because they voted in this way, if you have that in you, you don't have your eyes on Christ. Because when you put your eyes back on Jesus, guess what he's going to do? He's going to give you love for his body. It's his body. And he's going to call you and he's going to enable you to let go of those things and to get the priorities right once again. Now, I shared this recently and I want to share it again because it was really a, a significant moment for me, and I think it's just so applicable to our current situation. Um, remember the words of the captain of the Lord's army to Joshua there in Joshua chapter five, when Joshua is there, he's about to go into battle for Jericho. And then it says that, that there in the distance, he sees a man standing with a sword drawn. And so Joshua approaches this man, and this man is the Lord. It's, it's a, what you would call a uh, theophany. It's an appearance of God in a human form. Uh, but Joshua doesn't realize that at first. So he comes to him, and he comes with this question. He says, are you for us, or are you for our enemies? And the response is, Neither. But as the captain of the Lord's army, I have come. So let me translate that into today's language. Are you for us? Are you for them? I'm for neither. I'm for me. And you better get in line behind me. You see, the reality is Jesus is not going to be co-opted by one side or the other. Jesus is for himself. He's got a plan. He has an agenda. And he's not on either team. He's got his own team. And Christians are by our very definition supposed to be on his team because he's the captain of the Lord's army. So you see, we have to recognize that. Now, I know it's easy to think that, of course, the Lord's on our team. That's just something that we do. We even think that about stuff like sports. You know, I thought the Lord was on the Chiefs team. But apparently, he was on the Buccaneers team. <laughs> because the Chiefs lost, right? But, you know, we, we've thought that stuff, right? Oh, man, I'm praying, I'm praying for the Chiefs today, you know? Praying for Mahomes, you know? Man, God's with that guy. He's going to bless him. <laughs> you know, we really do think that. 
I don't think the Lord gets involved in uh, sports in that way, to give one team favor over the other. But that, that's kind of just a humorous way to look at it, even though we really actually do that. But, you know, take it on to, to other levels, and it's the same principle. No, the Lord is not, he, he's not with your political party. He's not with the other political party. He's not with your candidate. He's not with the other candidate. He's with himself. You know, people even ask, have you seen stuff like this? Like, today, would Jesus be a Republican or a Democrat? Don't even ask that question. No, no, he wouldn't be, neither. Jesus is Jesus, <laughs> he's God. So we've got to get on the Lord's side. He's not divided and neither will we be when we align with him. Now, that doesn't mean it doesn't mean that we won't hold different views on issues. I'm not talking about uniformity here, that we all have to think the same thing. Uh, you don't have to think the same thing that I think about political things or social things. You, you can think what you want on that. We, we have that freedom. We're not, we're not calling for... Uh, Uniformity in these areas, just like we're not calling for uniformity in secondary doctrinal issues. So we can hold different views. It doesn't mean that we can hold different views. It means that we won't hate or blame or demonize or cancel or divide with other Christians over the issues. That's the big challenge right there. That's the big challenge. That we will not hate or blame or demonize or cancel or divide over these other issues. See, I might have my strong opinions about all of these things, but if my strong opinions lead me to break from my brothers and sisters in Christ, then I am wrong. And I need to get right. I've taken my eyes off Jesus and I've made this thing more important than the body of Christ. And we all know this, right? No political figure or no political party is going to save the world. <laughs> Jesus is going to save the world. And man, you know, this, I think about this often. You know, there are critical moments in history where the church has an opportunity to really shine for what it's supposed to be. And I think this is one of those critical moments, but I wonder, are we really shining that? Are we really doing very well? You know, in the midst of the confusion and the chaos and all of the stuff that's going on with all of these issues, you know, the church ideally would be a place where people in the midst of the confusion would go, you know, those, they seem to have it together over there. Gosh, they, they love each other. They're helping each other. They're, you know, they're working toward just healing and, and hope and all of those things. You know, that's what the church is to be. But if we're divided then we will not be that. And as a matter of fact, we're not that because people are looking on and they think Christians are nuts. Christians are crazy. 
You know, I just read a tweet from Sean Penn, the actor. And he's looking at, you know, the, all the politics and everything. And what does he conclude? He concludes that, you know, it's the fault of the Christians. Now, of course, he's got his own biases based on who he is. But, but nevertheless, he's just one of millions of people who think the same thing. The, the Christians got themselves attached to a political party. And so now all the bad things about the political party are also associated with Christians. So, you know, you're never going to win in that arena. We're not supposed to win in that arena. We are a different thing. Neither. Jesus is for neither. He's for himself. And the church is his body. And so we, as his body, we have to recognize Christ is not divided. If we are divided, we are at fault. And God help us to get our eyes back on Jesus so we can do what we are supposed to do despite our differences, love one another before one another and work collectively together for the advance of Christ's kingdom, not a worldly kingdom. In closing, I want to just come back around and I want to do this for anybody who's here today, anybody who's listening, anybody who's watching, who hasn't maybe received Christ. Paul says, Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach good news. You know, the word gospel means good news. That's the message, the good news. And the good news is this. The good news is that God has made a way for us human beings who have been separated from him because of sin and held bondage under the power of sin, he's made a way for us to be set free from that bondage and to be reconciled to him and to be brought into a relationship with our creator. That's the good news. And of course, that all happens through Jesus Christ and what he's done. And so as we close today, do you know this good news and have you received this good news? Have you received that gift that God has for you? That when you lay hold of it for what it really is, you're going to realize that all of this other stuff, it, you know, it has a place and it does have some importance in life, but it's not the main thing. There's something way, way bigger and way, way better than any of these other things could ever be. And that's, like I said in the very beginning, that's a relationship with a God who made you and the God who loves you and the God who has a plan for your life. 